Chapter Thirteen of Pushing to the Front by Horizon Sweat Martin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Luke Sartor. Chapter Thirteen The Triumph of Enthusiasm. The labor we delight in physics pain. Shakespeare. The only conclusive evidence of a man's sincerity is that he gives himself for a principle. Words, money, all things else are comparatively easy to give away, but when a man makes a gift of his daily life and practice, it is plain that the truth, whatever it may be, has taken possession of him. Lowell Let us beware of losing our enthusiasm. Let us ever glory in something and strive to retain our admiration for all that would ennoble, and our interest in all that would enrich and beautify our life. Phillips Brooks In the Galerie de Beaux-Arts in Paris is a beautiful statue conceived by a sculptor who was so poor that he lived and worked in a small garret. When his clay model was nearly done, a heavy frost fell upon the city. He knew that if the water in the interstices of the clay should freeze, the beautiful lines would be distorted. So he wrapped his bedclothes around the clay image. In the morning, he was found dead, but his idea was saved, and other hands gave it enduring form in marble. I do not know how it is with others when speaking on an important question said Henry Clay. But on such occasions I seem to be unconscious of the external world. Wholly engrossed by the subject before me, I lose all sense of personal identity, of time, or of surrounding objects. A bank never becomes very successful, says a noted financier, until it gets a president who takes it to bed with him. Enthusiasm gives the otherwise dry and uninteresting subject or occupation a new meaning. As the young lover has finer sense and more acute vision, and sees in the object of his affections a hundred virtues, and charms invisible to all other eyes, so a man permeated with enthusiasm has his power of perception heightened and his vision magnified until he sees beauty and charms others cannot discern, which compensate for drudgery, privations, hardships, and even persecution. Dickens says he was haunted, possessed, spirit-driven, by the plots and characters in his stories, which would not let him sleep or rest until he had committed them to paper. On one sketch he shut himself up for a month, and when he came out he looked as haggard as a murderer. His characters haunted him day and night. Herr Kappelmeister, I should like to compose something. How shall I begin? asked a youth of twelve who had played with great skill on the piano. Pooh, pooh, replied Mozart, you must wait. But you began when you were younger than I am, said the boy. Yes, so I did said the great composer. But I never asked anything about it. When one has the spirit of a composer, 
He writes because he can't help it. Gladstone said that what is really desired is to light up the spirit that is within a boy. In some sense and in some degree, in some effectual degree, there is in every boy the material of good work in the world. In every boy, not only in those who are brilliant, not only in those who are quick, but in those who are stolid, and even in those who are dull, or who seem to be dull. If they have only the good will, the dullness will day by day clear away and vanish completely under the influence of the good will. Gerster, an unknown Hungarian, made fame and fortune sure the first night she appeared in opera. Her enthusiasm almost hypnotized her auditors. In less than a week, she had become popular and independent. Her soul was smitten with a passion for growth, and all the powers of her heart and mind she possessed were enthusiastically devoted to self-improvement. All great works of art have been produced when the artist was intoxicated with the passion for beauty and form, which would not let him rest until his thought was expressed in marble or on canvas. Well, I've worked hard enough for it, said Malibran, when a critic expressed his admiration of her D in alt, reached by running up three octaves from low D. I've been chasing it for a month. I pursued it everywhere. When I was dressing, when I was doing my hair, and at last I found it on the toe of the shoe that I was putting on. Every great and commanding moment in the annals of the world, says Emerson, is the triumph of some enthusiasm, the victories of the Arabs after Mahomet, who, in a few years, from a small and mean beginning, established a larger empire than that of Rome, is an example. They did, they knew not what. The naked Durar, horsed on an idea, was found an overmatch for a troop of cavalry. The women fought like men and conquered the Roman men. They were miserably equipped, miserably fed, but they were temperance troops. There was neither brandy nor flesh needed to feed them. They conquered Asia and Africa and Spain on Bali. The Caliph Omar's walking stick struck more terror into those who saw it than another man's sword. It was enthusiasm that enabled Napoleon to make a campaign in two weeks that would have taken another a year to accomplish. These Frenchmen are not men, they fly, said the Austrians in consternation. In fifteen days, Napoleon, in his first Italian campaign, had gained six victories, taken twenty-one standards, fifty-five pieces of cannon, had captured fifteen thousand prisoners, and had conquered Piedmont. After this astonishing avalanche, a discomfited Austrian general said, This young commander knows nothing whatever about the art of war. He is a perfect ignoramus. There is no doing anything with him. But his soldiers followed their little corporal with an enthusiasm which knew no defeat or disaster. 
There are important cases, says A.H.K. Boyd, in which the difference between half a heart and a whole heart makes just the difference between signal defeat and a splendid victory. Should I die this minute, said Nelson, at an important crisis, want of frigates would be found written on my heart. The simple, innocent maid of Orleans, with her sacred sword, her consecrated banner, and her belief in her great mission, sent a thrill of enthusiasm through the whole French army, such as neither king nor statesman could produce. Her zeal carried everything before it. Oh, what a great work each one could perform in this world, if he only knew his power. But, like a bitted horse, man does not realize his strength until he has once run away with himself. Underneath is laid the builder of this church and city, Christopher Wren, who lived more than ninety years, not for himself, but for the public good. Reader, if you seek his monument, look around. Turn where you will in London. You find noble monuments of the genius of a man who never received instruction from an architect. He built fifty-five churches in the city and thirty-six halls. I would give my skin for the architect's design of the Louvre, said he. When in Paris to get ideas for the restoration of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. His rare skill is shown in the palaces of Hampton Court and Kensington, in Temple Bar, Drury Lane Theatre, the Royal Exchange and the Great Monument. He changed Greenwich Palace into a sailor's retreat and built churches and colleges at Oxford. He also planned for the rebuilding of London after the Great Fire, but those in authority would not adopt his splendid idea. He worked thirty-five years upon his masterpiece, St. Paul's Cathedral. Although he lived so long, and was exceedingly healthy in later life, he was so delicate as a child that he was a constant source of anxiety to his parents. His great enthusiasm alone seemed to give strength to his body. Indifference never leads armies that conquer, never models statues that live, nor breathes sublime music, nor harnesses the forces of nature, nor rears impressive architecture, nor moves the soul with poetry, nor the world with heroic philanthropies. Enthusiasm, as Charles Bell says of the hand, wrought the statue of Memnon, and hung the brazen gates of Thebes. It fixed the mariner's trembling needle upon its axis, and first heaved the tremendous bar of the printing press. It opened the tubes for Galileo, until world after world swept before his vision, and it reefed the high topsail that rustled over Columbus in the morning breezes of the Bahamas. It has held the sword with which freedom has fought her battles, and poised the axe of the dauntless woodman as he opened the paths of civilization and turned the mystic leaves upon which Milton and Shakespeare inscribed their burning thoughts. Horace Greeley said that the best product of labor 
is the high-minded workman and an enthusiasm for his work. The best method is obtained by earnestness, said Salvini. If you can impress people with the conviction that you feel what you say, they will pardon many shortcomings, and above all, study, study, study. All the genius in the world will not help you along with any art unless you become a hard student. It has taken me years to master a single part. There is a go, a zeal, a furor, almost a fanaticism for one's ideals or calling that is peculiar to our American temperament and life. You do not find this in tropical countries. It did not exist fifty years ago. It could not be found, then, even on the London Exchange. But the influence of the United States and of Australia, where, if a person is to succeed, he must be on the jump with all the ardour of his being, has finally extended until what used to be the peculiar strength of a few great minds has now become characteristic of the leading nations. Enthusiasm is the being awake. It is the tingling of every fibre of one's being to do the work that one's heart desires. Enthusiasm made Victor Hugo lock up his clothes while writing Notre Dame, that he might not leave the work until it was finished. The great actor Garrick well illustrated it when asked by an unsuccessful preacher the secret of his power over audiences. You speak of eternal verities, and what you know to be true, as if you hardly believed what you were saying yourself, whereas I utter what I know to be unreal and untrue, as if I did believe it in my very soul. When he comes into a room, every man feels as if he had taken a tonic and had a new lease of life, said a man when asked the reason for his selection, after he, with two companions, had written upon a slip of paper the name of the most agreeable companion he had ever met. He is an eager, vivid fellow, full of joy, bubbling over with spirits. His sympathies are quick, as an electric flash. He throws himself into the occasion, whatever it may be, with his whole heart, said the second, in praise of the man of his choice. He makes the best of everything, said the third, speaking of his own most cherished acquaintance. The three were travelling correspondents of great English journals, who had visited every quarter of the world and talked with all kinds of men. The papers were examined, and all were found to contain the name of a prominent lawyer in Melbourne, Australia. If it were not for respect for human opinions, said Madame de Stael to M. Mole, I would not open my window to see the Bay of Naples for the first time, while I would go five hundred leagues to talk with a man of genius whom I had not seen. Enthusiasm is that secret and harmonious spirit which hovers over the production of men, throwing the reader of a book or the spectator of a statue into the very ideal presence whence these works have originated. One moonlight evening in winter, writes the biographer of Beethoven, 
we were walking through a narrow street of Bonn. Hush! exclaimed the great composer, suddenly pausing before a little, mean dwelling. What sound is that? It is from my sonata in F. Hark. How well it is played! In the midst of the finale there was a break, and a sobbing voice cried, I cannot play any more. It is so beautiful. It is utterly beyond my power to do it justice. Oh, what would I not give to go to the concert at Cologne? Ah, my sister, said a second voice, why create regrets when there is no remedy? We can scarcely pay our rent. You are right, said the first speaker, and yet I wish for once in my life to hear some really good music. But it is of no use. Let us go in, said Beethoven. Go in, I remonstrated, but what should we go in for? I will play to her, replied my companion in an excited tone. Here is feeling, genius, understanding. I will play to her, and she will understand it. Pardon me, he continued, as he opened the door and saw a young man sitting by a table, mending shoes, and a young girl leaning sorrowfully upon an old-fashioned piano. I heard music and was tempted to enter. I am a musician. I, I also overheard something of what you said. You wish to hear. That is, you would like. That, that is, shall I play for you? Thank you, said the shoemaker. But our piano is so wretched, and we have no music. No music, exclaimed the composer. How then does the young lady... I, I entreat your pardon, he added, stammering as he saw that the girl was blind. I had not perceived before. Then you play by ear? But where do you hear the music, since you frequent no concerts? We lived at Brühl for two years, and while there I used to hear a lady practicing near us. During the summer evenings her windows were generally open, and I walked to and fro outside to listen to her. Beethoven seated himself at the piano. Never during all the years I knew him did I hear him play better than to that blind girl and to her brother. Even the old instrument seemed inspired. The young man and woman sat as if entranced by the magical sweet sounds that flowed out upon the air in rhythmical swell and cadence, until, suddenly, the flame of the single candle wavered, sank, flickered, and went out. The shutters were thrown open, admitting a flood of brilliant moonlight, but the player paused, as if lost in thought. "'Wonderful man,' said the shoemaker in a low tone. "'Who and what are you?' "'Listen,' replied the master." and he played the opening bars of the sonata in F. "'Then you are Beethoven!' burst from the young people in delighted recognition. "'Oh, play to us once more!' they added, as he rose to go. "'Only once more!' "'I will improvise a sonata to the moonlight,' said he, gazing thoughtfully upon the liquid stars shining so softly out of the depths of a cloudless winter sky." Then he played a sad and infinitely loving movement, which crept silently over the instrument, 
like the calm flow of moonlight over the earth. This was followed by a wild elfin passage in triple time, a sort of grotesque interlude, like the dance of fairies upon the lawn. Then came a swift agitated ending, a breathless hurrying, trembling movement, descriptive of flight and uncertainty and vague impulsive terror, which carried us away on its rustling wings and left us all in emotion and wonder. Farewell to you he said, as he rose and turned toward the door. "'You will come again?' asked the host and hostess, in a breath. "'Yes, yes,' said Beethoven hurriedly. "'I will come again, and give the young lady some lessons. Farewell!' Then to me, he added, "'Let us make haste back, that I may write out that sonata while I can yet remember it.' We did return in haste, and not until long past the dawn of day did he rise from his table with the full score of the Moonlight Sonata in his hand. Michelangelo studied anatomy twelve years, nearly ruining his health, but this course determined his style, his practice, and his glory. He drew his figures in skeleton, added muscles, fat, and skin successively, and then draped them. He made every tool he used in sculpture, such as files, chisels, and pincers. In painting, he prepared all his own colors and would not let servants or students even mix them. Raphael's enthusiasm inspired every artist in Italy, and his modest, charming manners disarmed envy and jealousy. He has been called the only distinguished man who lived and died without an enemy, or a detractor. Again and again, poor Bunyan might have had his liberty, but not the separation from his poor blind daughter Mary, which he said was like pulling the flesh from his bones, not the need of a poor family dependent upon him, not the love of liberty, nor the spur of ambition, could induce him to forego his plain preaching in public places. He had so forgotten his early education that his wife had to teach him again to read and write. It was the enthusiasm of conviction which enabled this poor, ignorant, despised Bedford Tinker to write his immortal allegory with such fascination that a whole world has read it. Only thoughts that breathe in words that burn can kindle the spark slumbering in the heart of another. Rare consecration to a great enterprise is found in the work of the late Francis Parkman. While a student at Harvard, he determined to write the history of the French and English in North America. With a steadiness and devotion seldom equaled, he gave his life, his fortune, his all to this one great object. Although he had, while among the Dakota Indians, collecting material for his history, ruined his health, and could not use his eyes more than five minutes at a time for fifty years. He did not swerve a hair's breadth from the high purpose formed in his youth, until he gave to the world the best history upon the subject ever written. After Lincoln had walked six miles to borrow a grammar, he returned home and burned one shaving after another, 
while he studied the precious prize. Gilbert Beckett, an English crusader, was taken prisoner and became a slave in the palace of a Saracen prince, where he not only gained the confidence of his master, but also the love of his master's fair daughter. By and by he escaped and returned to England, but the devoted girl determined to follow him. She knew but two words of the English language, London and Gilbert. But by repeating the first, she obtained passage in a vessel to the great metropolis, and then she went from street to street pronouncing the other, Gilbert. At last she came to the street on which Gilbert lived in prosperity. The unusual crowd drew the family to the window when Gilbert himself saw and recognized her, and took to his arms and home his far-come princess with her solitary fond word. The most irresistible charm of youth is its bubbling enthusiasm. Youth sees no darkness ahead, no defileness that has no outlet. It forgets that there is such a thing as failure in the world and believes that mankind has been waiting all these centuries for him to come and be the liberator of truth and energy and beauty. Of what use was it to forbid the boy Handel to touch a musical instrument, or to forbid him going to school, lest he learn the gamut? He stole midnight interviews with a dumb spinet in a secret attic. The boy Bach copied whole books of studies by moonlight, for want of a candle churlishly denied. Nor was he disheartened when these copies were taken from him. The painter West began in a garret and plundered the family cat for bristles to make his brushes. It is the enthusiasm of youth which cuts the Gordian knot age cannot untie. People smile at the enthusiasm of youth, says Charles Kingsley. That enthusiasm which they themselves secretly look back to with a sigh, perhaps unconscious that it is partly their own fault that they ever lost it. How much the world owes to the enthusiasm of Dante. Tennyson wrote his first volume at eighteen, and at nineteen gained a medal at Cambridge. The most beautiful works of all art were done in youth, says Ruskin. Almost everything that is great has been done by youth, wrote Disraeli. The world's interests are, under God, in the hands of the young, says Dr. Trumbull. It was the youth Hercules that performed the twelve labors. Enthusiastic youth faces the sun, its shadows all behind it. The heart rules youth, the head, manhood. Alexander was a mere youth when he rolled back to the Asiatic hordes that threatened to overwhelm European civilization almost at its birth. Napoleon had conquered Italy at twenty-five. Byron and Raphael died at thirty-seven, an age which has been fatal to many a genius. And Poe lived but a few months longer. Romulus founded Rome at twenty. Pitt and Bolingbroke were ministers almost before they were men. Gladstone was in Parliament in early manhood. 
Newton made some of his greatest discoveries before he was twenty-five. Keats died at twenty-five. Shelley at twenty-nine. Luther was a triumphant reformer at twenty-five. It is said that no English poet ever equaled Chatterton at twenty-one. Whitefield and Wesley began their great revival as students at Oxford, and the former had made his influence felt throughout England before he was twenty-four. Victor Hugo wrote a tragedy at fifteen, and had taken three prizes at the Academy, and gained the title of Master, before he was twenty. Many of the world's greatest geniuses never saw forty years. Never before has the young man who is driven by his enthusiasm had such an opportunity as he has today. It is the age of young men and young women. Their ardor is their crown, before which the languid and the passive bow. But if enthusiasm is irresistible in youth, how much more so is it when carried into old age? Gladstone at eighty had ten times the weight and power that any man of twenty-five would have with the same ideals. The glory of age is only the glory of its enthusiasm, and the respect paid to white hairs is reverence to a heart fervent, in spite of the torpid influence of an enfeebled body. The Odyssey was the creation of a blind old man, but that old man was Homer. The contagious zeal of an old man, Peter the Hermit, rolled the chivalry of Europe upon the ranks of Islam. Dandolo, the Doge of Venice, won battles at ninety-four, and refused a crown at ninety-six. Wellington planned and superintended fortifications at eighty. Bacon and Humboldt were enthusiastic students to the last gasp. Wise old Montagna was shrewd in his grey-beard wisdom and loving life, even in the midst of his fits of gout and colic. Dr. Johnson's best work, The Lives of the Poets, was written when he was seventy-eight. Defoe was fifty-eight when he published Robinson Crusoe. Newton wrote new briefs to his Principia at 83. Plato died writing at 81. Tom Scott began the study of Hebrew at 86. Galileo was nearly 70 when he wrote on the laws of motion. James Watt learned German at 85. Mrs. Somerville finished her molecular and microscopic science, at 89. Humboldt completed his Cosmos at 90, a month before his death. Burke was 35 before he obtained a seat in Parliament, yet he made the world feel his character. Unknown at 40, Grant was one of the most famous generals in history at 42. Ellie Whitney was 23, when he decided to prepare for college, and thirty when he graduated from Yale. Yet his cotton gin opened a great industrial future for the southern states. What a power was Bismarck at eighty! Lord Palmerston was an old boy to the last. He became Prime Minister of England the second time at seventy-five, 
and died prime minister at eighty-one. Galileo at seventy-seven, blind and feeble, was working every day, adapting the principle of the pendulum to clocks. George Stevenson did not learn to read and write until he had reached manhood. Some of Longfellow's, Whittier's, and Tennyson's best work was done after they were seventy. At sixty-three, Dryden began the translation of the Aeneid. Robert Hall learned Italian when past sixty, that he might read Dante in the original. Noah Webster studied seventeen languages after he was fifty. Cicero said well that men are like wine. Age sours the bad and improves the good. With enthusiasm, we may retain the youth of the spirit until the hair is silvered, even as the gulf stream softens the rigors of northern Europe. How ages thine heart towards youth? If not, doubt thy fitness for thy work. End of chapter 13 The Triumph of Enthusiasm Recording by Luke Sartor, Brisbane, Queensland.